Did you get a haircut? Who, me? Yeah. No. Okay, everybody. Entering the 1997-98 NBA season, the Chicago Bulls had won five championships in the previous seven years. However, as they sought their second three-peat, the future of the Bulls dynasty was in doubt. As preparations began for the 97-98 season, Jordan and the Bulls granted unprecedented access to a film crew for the entire year. As Jordan was preparing to include his time with the Bulls, three friends in Toronto were about to graduate from university. This is their story as seen through the ESPN Netflix docuseries, The Last Dance. Welcome to Jordan Ain't No Joke, Episode 6. This is the epilogue. My name is Sam Yunin. You may know me from my summer lair. For today's introduction question, Jordan's final Bulls game was June 14, 1998. And about one year later, we were facing Y2K. We just survived the end of the Bulls dynasty, only to face the end of the world. Do you have any Y2K memories? Were you fearful? Was it media hype or did we thankfully avoid a disaster? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly remember that period. It was um, it was hard not to get caught up in it. But uh, I think, you know, once we got closer to the date, things felt like a little more like, okay, I don't think this is going to be as bad as it seems. And looking back, there was this one guy who was kind of on all the cable news shows who was warning everybody about the, the end that was going to come thanks to uh, Y2K and, you know, planes were going to fall out of the sky and, you know, what's that Bill Murray line from uh, Ghostbusters? Oh, you know, cat- cats and dogs or something? <laughs> yeah, cats cats kissing dogs and like, you know, like that whole thing. And, uh, and I just remember it ended up being just like this, you know, the, the moment struck and it was just like, well, that was anticlimactic. Um, uh, so yeah, but you know, it was a different world back then. I, I think, um, you know, now something like that may not really get quite the traction because we have so much information on the internet, uh, that we could cross-reference that with. And I'm JT. And I'm DC. Well, to be honest, <laughs> I didn't take it that seriously. <laughs> so I didn't believe anything was going to happen, but, uh, if I think about it now, I think we all died and now we're all part of the matrix, <laughs> especially the way uh, people like to talk nowadays. Uh, they just maybe why, of... yeah, maybe Y2K did actually happen. And this is, <laughs> yeah. like you said, this is the matrix that we're living in. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, no particular. I, I think, I, you know, I feel, I think I was more worried about my PC at the time than I was about the world in general. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All those word files I had to back up. <laughs> what were you, Sam? Yeah, it's a weird. It was a weird media thing too, where like the media was convinced that this was something that you should be scared of, but I was also like, "Well, let me know how this works out," because they were at the one point was saying like planes are gonna fall out of the sky, and I was like, "That seems a little extreme." I think they'll probably got this. Like they'll fix this up. <laughs> so I was like pretty casual about it. I'm like, "Let me know how this works out." 
So I, yeah. I think it was a lot of energy because it was like 99 going to 2000. So it was a new millennium uh, or will millennium, I guess, as Will Smith called it. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think this is, that was one of those moments in history where it's like, you know, every time uh, we, you know, historically had this new millennium pass, uh, pass through, we, we, you know, human beings would get kind of nutty. I remember people talking about like, you know, the Mayan calendar, you know, predicting, you know, you know, horrible destruction to, to the world uh, at the, the previous millennium. So, you know, it's just human nature, I, I think. Yeah, the Mayans and John Cusack. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are here to wrap up the final episode of Jordan Ain't No Joke. Uh, so we've been going through the uh, the last dance, uh, each of the two episodes as they've been kind of given, and we felt that there was a few loose ends, a few loose threads. Where would you guys like to start? Impressions of the doc as a whole, or is there specific themes? Or uh, We, we kind of touched upon some of the Pippin stuff. We talked about Jerry Krause being villain or foil, where would you like to start? Why don't we start with the idea that MJ was a bully? Yeah, right. What were your guys' impressions? Is Michael Jordan a bully or was he a bully? Ultimately, I don't know that he was a bully. I think there was enough, you know, you know I guess we got to kind of define bu- a bu- what a bully is, right? Like, I mean, a bully is someone who puts the fear into people who are um, lesser than them and are unable to defend themselves. Um, and I don't know that that's, this was necessarily the case here with the, with those, with that Bulls team or, you know, the, the teams that he uh, played with in those uh, whatever amount of years that he played on the Bulls was. Um, I think he was a taskmaster. I think he was tough. I think he was, um, not as not necessarily always a nice person uh maybe he was even an asshole at times but i don't know that he was a bully i think that that doesn't really you know jive with the, the true meaning of what a bully is what about you sam my answer is no and i think for a couple of reasons one is jordan was always whenever he was quote unquote mean or tough on players or whatever it was always within a basketball context like he wasn't like the type to have like vendettas uh, off the court like you know what I mean like there's that scene where like uh, BJ Armstrong was playing on the Hornets and he had a good game and so Jordan's like alright you had a good game I'm gonna come after you and he did but he only did it on the basketball court he didn't come after him like later on when he was like a, a agent and was like don't sign with BJ or whatever like even when Jordan was coming back he called BJ and went to have breakfast with him you know what I mean like it wasn't something that was off the court and I think because it was just on the court activities Jordan realized that they were going to face the Pistons and they were going to face the Knicks and the Pacers. And he needed people that were like fire tested and he didn't have time to like for them to kind of go through the Pistons and the Pacers and the Knicks and stuff and then maybe learn some lessons or not. He felt it was kind of easier to fast forward through things. And I think the fact that he also had Phil Jackson to kind of smooth those relationships and those egos out. I think that also balanced it out. So I think he had a lot of leeway that way. So no, you need to suck it up, Buttercup. Well, he and he also, you know, uh, in the moments that we knew about where he crossed the line, you know, you know, Phil Jackson stepped in, and I'm sure there were many other moments like that uh, that we mean maybe you know, maybe Luke Longley may have something to say (laughs) because he (laughs) certainly didn't get a chance to say anything in the documentary. Um, But. 
but okay but let me ask, okay based on that rationale sam like would you say that that is the case when it comes to isaiah thomas in the olympics do you think he was a bully in that situation no because well if I'm gonna step, if you don't mind me stepping in, I don't think he was bullying that situation at all because a Jordan wasn't the only one who didn't want Isaiah on the team. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, there was some leakage of uh, of a of a uh, podcast that happened like ten years ago where Jordan, in his own words, said that he was asked about Isaiah or he said that he's not gonna play if Isaiah was gonna be on the team. But that doesn't mean like Jordan says he's not necessarily saying okay, well, uh, you know, I don't want Isaiah on the team. He's just saying, I'm not going to play if he's there, even if he, that's what, if that's what he said. The fact that he has two different accounts of it kind of plays into, well, th- that stuff happened a long time ago, so it's hard to remember exactly what happened. But, like, we, I think we've talked about this before. Magic had a problem with Isaiah. Bird had problems. Karl Malone, Scottie Pippen. So, I mean, that's what they say in the doc, too. Like, there's just no way of him getting in with or without Jordan. Isaiah was the bully, really. I was just going to say, I think really Isaiah and that and and the Pistons were really the bullies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Bad boys. Yeah, yeah, you both make great points, like, for sure. I mean, he's not the, um, I don't think he's a dictionary definition of bully. Like, it's not like, you know, Biff uh, (laughs) mashing down George and Marty McFly or anything like that. Hello, McFly. It's all in the context of the game, trying to make everybody better. Right? Yeah, Putting... I mean, yeah, that's like calling a, you know, that's called calling a, a general uh, a bully because he yells at yeah. you to get get to accomplish a mission. I, yeah, I, I mean, this whole notion that him being a bully is somewhat colored by the current morality, let's say, of, of uh, you know, in the world right now. Things, you know, people are, have different expectations of uh, people now and um, I don't know that a lot of people can handle that kind of intensity that Jordan displayed and so that may come off as you know someone being a bully Um, man I don't know I have to say I don't know that Michael could play in this league anymore like and not in terms of his his skills or anything but in just in terms of that toughness I feel like he'd just be getting called out uh, all the time or, or people you know say what you will about his teammates at the end of the day, they they had the fortitude to to push through with him and take that you know heat from him. I don't know that a player from today uh, today's generation could could take that kind of intense you know leadership. I mean that is quite the that is the debate nowadays. Some people think that he can't play today, but I think it's bullshit. I think a lot of dudes. I don't know if they're as intense as Jordan in terms of like being able to sustain that stuff, but they all trash talk. Mm-hmm. They all shit on each other too. And it's, I think it's really fucking hypocritical. And, and the worst part of it, about it is they all do that shit on social media. Yeah. You know, somebody might say something they don't like, and they, they kind of clap back as they say, and it gets really like, they, they call Jordan petty. The stuff that happens on social media between players and stuff gets super like childish. Like when LeBron unfollowed Cleveland Cavaliers. Right. And then ESPN will run like four articles on that. I'm like, that's not a thing. <laughs> and the worst part too is like a lot of, there's the idea that a lot of it comes across passive aggressive nowadays. 
like guys will clap back and they'll say their their piece and then you know there's like a, a smiley emoji you know oh just just kidding or whatever but it's but you know like jordan never ran into the other uh, the other locker room and tried to like get into a fight that happened with chris paul and uh, i think it was like when chris paul was with the clippers Oh, you're yeah. playing Houston Rockets. <laughs> this this fight went on, and he Chris Paul tried to get into the other locker room. Yeah, and I think, too, that we also don't factor in that a lot of these players are like 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, right? So everyone has a little bit of slightly different emotional makeup. Uh, you're still figuring yourself out, and all of a sudden you get into the NBA, you get this big fat contract, except for Pippen, and then you are now expected to perform, and you have this weird role where, like, and some of them, like, You've been the man all your life, and all of a sudden you get to the NBA and you're like not starting. You're coming off the bench or other things like that where you have to emotionally adjust. It's a whole different lifestyle. There's a lot of things you got to deal with, and we don't give them enough credit for the fact that like you're figuring things out. Like that's a good point. Like they didn't really even go to college, right? Like they might have gone to college for a year or two. Jordan and the doc went for three years, but for the most part nowadays, especially most players now only go for a year or two. And let's be honest, they're not really going to classes. You and I both know that. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. That is true. They are younger, uh, generally coming in a lot younger. Um, so, yeah, they definitely are, don't have that same level of maturity yet. I just want to add one more thing. Like, Jordan never gets enough credit for making the league better. Because when the, when the schedule comes out, everyone will circle a bunch of dates, whatever, when they're going to play in Miami. The Miami Heat were terrible at that time when Jordan was playing. So that was kind of like a night off, and you can go out and have some drinks, get meet some girls. Um, Raptors were terrible at that time. Those are there's teams like that where you could circle and you know you can have a night off and you don't have to play that hard or whatever. But when the schedule also came out, everyone circled the Chicago Bulls games because everyone wanted to go with Jordan, and we saw that throughout the doc. Byron Russell's like, "I want to go at you." I'm like, "All right, Jordan, put you on the list." People were coming at Jordan, and no matter which team it was, even if it's like a terrible team that had no chance of winning, they wanted to go at Jordan. Remember when the Raptors won that 72 season? Like, that was their championship. There was, like, fireworks and, like, so much jubilation. Raptors didn't even have a winning season that year, but it was like that was their victory. And so because Jordan knew that people were going to go at him, it made the other players, the opposing players, better. And he knew that Jordan needed to make everybody else better. So it's like, it's a reciprocal effect. Like, it's a really cool thing. Yeah, and you know, uh, kind of throwing back to the point about teammates, I mean, Jordan, I think, not to say that he was completely selective, but if he was like a true kind of asshole bully all the time, then he wouldn't have tolerated all the shit that Rodman did. You know, he wouldn't even like... They had, you know, they had the meeting with, with Michael and say, hey, you know, Robin needs a 48-hour vacation. <laughs> and yeah, even though he doesn't like the idea, but he just, he knows that Robin's that kind of personality. He needs that space. Mm-hmm. And then most of the, throughout the doc, you even see little moments where like Phil might be a little hard on Robin and then like Jordan will try to smooth it out a bit. There's like a few, a couple of instances in practice uh, footage where Jordan's just joking around, you know, like technically Rodman's being scolded. Rodzilla. Yep. <laughs> Rodzilla. <laughs> so let's say we, how about, so, okay, in kind of connecting to this idea of the bully, Horace Grant is pissed off by the documentary. 
He went on radio, like I think it was a, a Chicago kind of radio interview, and he said the documentary was entertaining, but it was all BS. And one of the complaints that he had was that the doc made Jordan look like such a bad man and that everybody cowered, but that nobody gave it back to him. And what do you, so what do you guys think of that? Wait a second. Do you think Horace Grant watched the documentary with those goggles on? <laughs> that's a good question. Are those his TV goggles too? <laughs> I mean, I mean, if that's what he thinks about the documentary, I think he also had uh, earplugs on too. Because I, I don't know. I, I feel like uh, that's a little bit of uh, sour grapes on his part. I think the film is about Michael Jordan. So it is somewhat from his point of view. So that's just something you have to accept going in. Or even playing with Jordan too. Yeah, or even playing with Jordan. Like, you know, the, the, the teams, if you look at the, that, those Chicago Bulls, the, you know, it is, it, they, uh, you have to look at that team through the lens of Michael Jordan. It's just impossible not to. As far as, you know, other players see, seeming to be, you know, you know, cowering to Michael Jordan, you know, you have to understand, like, you know, this is, you know, a, a piece of filmmaking needs to have perspective and a framework to work within. You can't show every single moment and every single alternative to that moment. Uh, you have to pick a, you have to make a choice. Uh, and, and the choice clearly here is to tell the story through Michael Jordan. And if you tell the story through Michael Jordan, then, then of course, that's what you're going to see. You're not going to have time to show every single situation where someone you know, gave it right back to him. But you do, you can choose specific moments that were big enough or dramatic enough to illustrate that not everyone took his shit in which the documentary did with Steve Kerr and, uh, and uh, probably a couple other moments. Well, yeah, so, even Scott Burrell. And Scott, Scotty Burrell as well. There are moments where he's like, uh, you know, he's kind of giving it back to Jordan. You know, he's a very nice guy. He's very, you know, he smiles when he's doing it. But he's not just sitting there cowering and crying in the corner uh, that, you know, Michael's being hard on him. There's a bit of, there's a sort of a camaraderie there. Yeah, so, I mean, just to, you know, just to finish the point is that, you know, I think Horace Grant, obviously, he has a history there that he's trying to, and, and a perspective that he's trying to get out there because, you know, he left the Bulls and became a, a rival. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I can see how he might feel a little you know, may feel a certain way about it. But yeah, I don't agree with that perspective at all. Well, I have a question, though, since we're talking about Horace Grant. Mm -hmm. Was the Bulls-Horace Grant team better than the Rodman uh, Bulls team? Like, how would you kind of put them? Because we saw the in-between when they were terrible, so they clearly needed somebody in that role. And Horace Grant is completely different than Dennis Rodman. So do you put the Grant team better or above the, the Dennis Rodman team or vice versa? I'll let Denny take this one first. <laughs> it's kind of weird. There's like, there's arguments for both, but it's sort of like, like the first three P team was like the Beatles, you know, like in the first half of their career. You know, the mop tops. Yeah. The mop tops. She loves you. Yeah. Yeah. All like that. Hard day's were, night. Yeah. And what well, it's, it's almost even still when they were like, even, even just before they got really big, because if you look at the team, the makeup of the team and the players, in terms of talent, the second three-peat team, I think, was more talented. Mm -hmm. 
the first team is interesting to watch because you're like watching a group of guys who are less talented that but played smarter yeah. and who, who are really like they had a good chemistry going on so it's hard to say but if you put those two teams and you, you play them against each other i think the second the second uh, 3p team would win yeah that makes sense yeah yeah i mean i think rodman i think in that situation i think rodman for me is was is a very special player but you know what he brought to the team i mean take everything off the court out of out of the equation uh, there's a certain intensity and um and you know he's just he was a guy who stayed in his lane he knew what he was good at and he that's what he did and he didn't care about anything else he didn't care about being you know popular or, or hitting that shot or getting you know that he was all about the rebounds that was his his focus and uh he brought a, just a, a kind of a great energy a fun fun energy to you know to the team that made it really entertaining to watch well and carmen electra too he brought carmen electra the team. Yeah, yeah she was there too <laughs> that's, also, that's also fun to watch madonna <laughs> but yeah and he also brought mind games you know he just brought, yeah. The, yeah, he brought true, the yeah. dirtiness yeah. <laughs> and that load management too. <laughs> that the pre-load management, load management. You know, for me, for that second uh, three-peat team, it, I think Tony Kukoc was the, he's like the major X factor between the mm-hmm. two different uh, Bulls team. But that guy, I think, completely underrated, <laughs> kind of completely, uh, oh, what's the word? Uh, the guy who <laughs> kind of lost in this documentary. Because you know, he I think they didn't mention him enough. They didn't mention his impact enough. Yeah, the second three P team, especially because we touched upon this before, but like you already have Jordan, who kind of sucks up a lot of the headlines and a lot of the oxygen in the room. Uh, Pippen usually has great games, so Pippen kind of gets some headlines and some great stats and stuff. And then Rodman is Rodman, and he's kind of wild all over the place and taking off on vacation and stuff like that. So you don't really have enough time to get to Tony Kukoc and kind of recognize what he's doing. And it's the same thing too, like Steve Kerr. I think most people now know Steve Kerr because he's the coach of the Warriors and he's won some championships and stuff like that. But they would be shocked to go back and see him play. And like, he was an integral part of the Bulls. Like he hit a number of shots throughout the whole run and he doesn't get enough credit either. It's kind of, uh, you know, like I think we might've said it before, we touched on it before, but um, it's like the real housewives of, the NBA, you know, like it's just, um, it's, and it's kind of funny in a lot of ways, none of those guys have changed and there's still, you know, everybody's kind of saying how bitter Jordan is in this uh, whole thing. I think everybody's bitter mm-hmm. and like back in the day, like everybody's frozen in time. Even back in the day, it was always that way. It was Jordan, Pippen, then Grant. And the narrative back then, just like it is in this documentary and just like it is today, Grant resented being the third wheel. He didn't like that. Uh, he still doesn't like it. And, you know, I, I don't blame him for getting defensive if, uh, within the doc where kind of Jordan puts it on him for kind of spilling uh, all the dirt to Sam Smith. And maybe that happened and maybe it didn't. But yeah, his perspective on the documentary is just a little, just, just bitter. Well, it's an interesting point that you make. Like, you know, when, when men go through extremely intense situations like that, especially at that age, early, you know, early in their 
you know, sort of in their early 20s and 30s, they do tend to sort of, a part of them does get frozen in that time period. I mean, you look at, you know, men who come back from war, you know, it's kind of very similar, is that they, they kind of get frozen in time because of the, such an intense situation that it was. And then with these guys, on top of that, there's a, there's a celebrity and fame aspect to it as well. And so they're trying to, you know, keep a certain, um, you know, image of themselves, you know, either that, that you know, keep an image that they had at, at that time in their life or to revise a history uh, to fix the image that they had uh, at that time. And, and I think that happens with everyone, you know, start up, up to Jordan and, and down. Uh, I think that happens to everyone at a certain level. But someone like Jordan, there's so much on the record that, you know, there's not, you might be able to argue a certain a few points here and there, but there's just so much that's just on the record that you, you know, you can't argue a lot of it. And, um, and then, you know, unfortunately, guys like Horace Grant are competing with the, the mythology of Michael Jordan. And it's hard to uh, compete with with the myth and the, you know the legend of a man. Yeah, so it's hard to l- compete with the the legend and the myth. But then Horace Grant, who's tired of being number three, goes to the Orlando, Orlando Magic, where he's number three again. Like after Penny and um, Shaq, and even to a certain degree Nick Anderson too. So it's like he didn't go somewhere and become the man. Yeah, I mean, I guess like like I I. I... I can only imagine what these guys go through, you know, like they, they grow up and they have exceptional skills. And then as they get to each, they graduate to each level. It's like you either are one of the top guys or you start to kind of, your stock starts to slowly go down or your role changes. And I think maybe, I think Grant even admitted this to like in an interview, he's saying, you know, when he came out of college, he was like the aggressor. He was one of the top guys. And then going into a situation, uh, you know, like the Bulls, where he's kind of like the third wheel, it was hard for his ego to take that because his ego's probably stroked most of his life. 100%. Like every one of these guys was the alpha male coming into the NBA. And then they realize that they're now in the, the den with a bunch of other alphas. And then who's going to be the alpha of the alphas? And, and you know, once you get to that level, it's kind of like, okay, well, pick your lane and stick to it. Otherwise you're not going to survive. You know, in this situation, Jordan was the alpha. Pippen thrived because he realized that, you know, he was, he knew what his place was and where he could do the most good. And, uh, and he was able to flourish in that situation. And I think Horace's ego just couldn't handle it. I think that's kind of why the Rodman situation was better for the second three peak. Because Rodman, we kind of already said, like Rodman knew exactly what he, he came into the Bulls. He's like, I'm doing this. That's all I'm doing, right? Whereas Grant's like, I can do these five things. And we're like, we only need to do these three things. That's it, you know? Yeah. Um, um, (laughs) Well, it's kind of like, you know, uh, I'll make the analogy with film school, right? When you go into film school, everyone comes into film school wanting to be a director. And then, you know, by the first or second year, you realize whether you're going to be a director or, or are you going to specialize in another aspect of, of, the, of, of the filmmaking process? Because not everyone can be a director or, or wants to be. You, you find yourself, right? You find like, okay, well, you know, I'm actually really good at this one thing. I don't want to deal with the headache of being a director, but let me just do, you know, cinematography or whatever it is. Um, and I think that's kind of what happens here as well. 
circling back to the whole Jordan is a bully thing, I find that a lot of people still have beef with Jordan, but it's like part of it is a lot of it is their hang up. It's their issue. Like Barkley and Jordan don't kind of get along, uh, but Barkley was kind of mean to Jordan. Like there, there's some things that they got to resolve there. Same thing with Horace Grant. Like you need to let stuff go now. Like the championships are done. You're not going to play anything. There's no need to relitigate it. It's kind of done. Um, Isaiah Thomas and Jordan, that's never going to get salvaged. Uh, so that one you could just write off. <laughs> that's totaled. But the other stuff is just like, yeah, you just need to let stuff go after a certain point. Horace Grant should have been better off if he had joined the Bulls for that little um, ceremony at the end there where you write what the team means to you and you put it in the can and it burns up. He what he needed to let things go, man, because he's holding on. To he needed tightly. the fire ceremony for sure. <laughs> yeah, he needed the fire ceremony. Well, yeah, it's interesting because it's like I, I feel like he, um, you know, when you're in that situation, I, I think if you can't let certain things go, I think what's happening now with Kazakh Horace and Isaiah after this documentary came out, because it, it really does feel like this documentary is ultimately the final word on on that whole era, and that anything that comes out after this, uh, you know, may not really be able to make much headway in terms of what the record shows and I think a lot of them feel like oh, oh no let me get my two cents in because you know after this there's no there's no going back because this will be the the thing that everyone believes as the truth and for some of those guys unfortunately you know that well you know I'm not saying this is fair it, it may not be fair I think you know some of these guys you know probably do deserve a little more attention for, for their contributions but um, unfortunately, this is the final word on on that whole era, and uh, and so this will, I think, going forward, will be what the record is. See, the interesting thing is, though, the narrative out there, in like, if you listen to Sirius XM, like, or um, ESPN, a lot of these media personalities are kind of like on the opposite side. They're kind of saying. Yeah, it really shows how petty Jordan is. How how can a dude with so much success and so much money can still be so miserable? And it's in some ways maybe that's a fair question because, like you know, most people define themselves not just in what they do; they look at their their life as a whole and whatnot. But at the same time, I feel like these media guys are like saying that this is what Jordan believes. Jordan believes this is his life, that he's uh, he's just a miserable, like, uh, Howard Hughes kind of dude with long toenails and Kleenex boxes on his feet who's just, like, sitting there in his house brooding about all this stuff. And it's like, no, it's all in the context of basketball. And that's, and I think that retells, says a lot about how whatever, what, what Jigger had said earlier, something, um, I forgot how you phrased it, but something like the the modern mindset or the just the way you know people believe in things nowadays they everybody sees things from their own lens from their own perspective but and they kind of project those perspectives onto jordan this is a documentary about basketball like you know how many guys out there and some of them are like former players they're saying lebron's the goat not jordan because lebron is such an activist I said, okay, great. LeBron is a is an activist. What does that have to do with what he does on the basketball court? The debate is about the greatest player. Yeah, absolutely not. He has absolutely nothing to do with it. 
Yeah, yeah, but I mean, that's just how, I don't know, it's just how warped and how much people try to really just, I don't know, I don't know, I don't even just want to say take things out of context, but they just really are building a narrative completely from their own personal psyche or their own sensitivities. They're project. it's projecting. Mm -hmm. It's bad psychology. Yeah, it's a, such a strange perspective to have when it's like, you know, you know, you look at someone like Muhammad Ali, you know, you can judge him as the greatest boxer ever, just purely on the boxing alone. And you you could say, yeah, he is the greatest of all time. Now, the fact that he also was an activist and did some pretty incredible things in terms of you know, moving the needle forward on, on civil rights, hundred percent, but that's a, that's a bonus. That's a cherry on top. That's a separate situation mm -hmm. that doesn't take away or add to the boxing and the game, uh, the, the sport itself, because he was the best at that. And that's its own thing. And if he did anything else outside of that, well, that's just great. But if we're talking about just the sport, then let's just talk about just the sport and, and on, on the merits of that, uh, which is what I feel like, you know, people are trying to, because they have, they, they have nothing to offer in terms of the, the play, the game, as far as LeBron goes. It's like, okay, LeBron was great, but he's just, we just know that he was not as good as Jordan or is, is not as good as Jordan on the court. So then we have to throw this other thing into the mix to devalue what Michael Jordan was. And uh, I just think that's just a, a ridiculous game to play. It also speaks to how Jordan needed motivation, regardless of how he got it or where it came from. If he felt that like Karl Malone shouldn't get the MVP or that Gary Payton wasn't better than him or whatever the slight was, he needed motivation and he needed to get up. I think Jordan's mistake, if I can use that word, was that he shared those things openly and the media took it and ran with it. Because I don't know what the media expects how a player should come in and I guess they should just be naturally hungry or like motivated or like I don't know what the media is expecting them to do. Like how to get up for these games and how to like win six championships. Like it's kind of random that like um, that you think that Jordan could just kind of come in and just win six championships. You need motivation. You needed to do like a way to push himself. And this was the way that he chose to do it. And the problem is that with sports, there's only one winner. It's not like a fair thing where everybody gets a trophy. I know that's what we do now. But there is only one championship at the end of the year. And whether it's fair or right or this team should have won or that, you know, we've had these arguments for years that maybe the Jazz team should have won one of the championships or this the Sonics team with Gary Payton and Sean Camp. That was a good team. They should have won one. Jordan earned those championships. Like, that's it. Like, he found the motivation, he found the will, and then he won. And it wasn't fair to those other teams, but that's the way it goes. Shoulda, coulda, woulda, man. Like, you know, I, I think of, uh, you know, Vince Carter today, you know, it was announced that he he's ultimately played his last game now because they won't be in the uh, 22 teams that are going to come back. Um, and so he's effectively retired. And, you know, I look back at his career with the Raptors and what an amazing player he was, what he, how great he was for the city, for the team, and but just how he flaked out at the end and how unforgivable that was. And that ultimately spoke to why he never won a ring. 
because he didn't have that champion's mindset. He couldn't take what was happening off the court out of the equation for himself, and he decided to just flake out. Jordan knew that last season was going to be his last because it was announced publicly by Kraus that this was it. There was going to be no more, you know, Phil Jackson was done, uh, and this was going to be the last, you know, literally the last dance. But he didn't just roll up and say, okay, well, I'm just going to call this in. This is the end. Who gives a shit? No, he was. He had the championships, champion's mindset to say, what matters is the game. I cannot leave the game like this. We're going to go out there. We're going to take this fucking beach, and we're going to win mm-hmm. at all costs. He didn't just throw his hands up in the air and wuss out, knowing that this was going to be the last season. And that's what you know separated you know, Michael from the rest. Now, the Vince Carter... Um... With you bringing up Vince Carter, that's a, that's a really good kind of point because yeah. I recall watching Vince back in those those days, and you know the American channels started picking up Raptor games because of the way Vince played, and every, he was super popular, getting voted in to the All Star games, and people kind of touted him as the next Jordan. But then you knew, you saw it. It's like he just kind of. He couldn't handle it. He is ultra talented, and he you could really tell he enjoyed the game. He really loved playing it. But then when it got time to get serious and to, to be a leader and to be a strategist, he didn't have that in him. And that was so disappointing as a Raptors fan. So disappointing. So disappointing. Was, oh, man. I mean, near the end there, it was just kind of un- it's unforgivable, really. And yet the media narrative for Vince Carter is that he played for the love of the game. Say that. I'm sorry, say that again? The the media narrative for Vince Carter as he's retiring is that he played for the love of the game. He was happy. He was enjoying it. Yeah, that's kind of bullshit. Like, that's, what does like, that even mean? The point of the game is is to win a championship. Yeah. If, if it was just for the love of the game, then, you know, go play some pickup basketball. <laughs> <laughs> At the Y. At the Y. Yeah, I mean, see, I think, I think what a lot of people have a hard time understanding is that I don't think anybody uh, exemplified the the love of the game more than Jordan. He knew exactly what the game was, mm-hmm. and he did everything he could to reach the natural conclusions of games. He just wanted to win. No, he's not like he's not, you know, dumping guys in the back alleys he's not like putting hits on people or anything like that he played within the rules he played within the game but he knew what the game was about and he loved the game so much that's why he was so fucking pissed off with, with the uh, the pistons because what, what was it two two three times two times they lost to the pistons in the eastern conference finals they beat the shit out of the bulls and yet Jordan had enough like love of the game to shake the fucking hand. Yeah. Right? But then when when they don't return the when the Pistons don't return the favor, it's like you fucking got you fucking assholes. Right? This isn't why this isn't why we play. Jordan had, Sorry? Jordan had a for for the love of the game clause. He was one of the first players to have that. Uh, up till then, NBA players were not really allowed to play basketball outside of like basketball settings. Uh, because they would get injured, obviously. Can you maybe explain uh, what what the love of the game clause is? Yeah, so up till then, 
NBA players were considered like, I guess, property for lack of a better term, because they didn't want them playing outside of NBA games. They would get injured, right? They would hurt their leg or something like that. Um, and that was also too one of the one of those shifts as we started to go to the dream team, where NBA players started playing outside of NBA games. And so Jordan negotiated a for the love of the game clause in his contract. And that meant that anywhere he was walking around, people were playing basketball. He could just suddenly join in and play, and he wouldn't get penalized or um, get like uh, yelled at from the owner, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf. And we've seen that now with other players like Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's gone to all kinds of parks and stuff, and he's always playing with people. There's all kinds of like uh, videos and Instagram things and stuff. And it's just like that love is there, but also that hunger and that hustle. And that's where Jordan kind of kept his edge. Okay, A, uh, I never heard of that. And B, why didn't the fucking documentary talk about that? Like that's that's a holy fucking shit moment, and that it's a huge says moment. So much that says mm-hmm. so fucking much. It and does. That should, that's a fucking lesson unto itself to like modern day players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's incredible. I, I yeah, I I can't imagine why it, that wasn't part of the documentary or. Uh, maybe it'll be in the bonus features, but it doesn't seem like that was even on the radar. Uh, Not at all. I mean, they had. I mean, they they had a really good moment too within that when that second year when Jordan broke his foot, and then yeah. you know he wanted to come back, but management was like, no, nope. I mean, that could have been a nice opening right there. And that that section of the documentary itself that shows the love of the game. It's like, all right, fuck you guys. I'm going back to North Carolina. I'm going to play pickup games. And um, yeah, fuck. well, even when he was shooting um, Space Jam, he was, pay- he was making those uh, pickup games uh, happen on his uh, off time, on his lunch breaks and stuff. And you know, he could have got hurt in those because he was playing pretty intense basketball with the best players in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would have been, yeah, it would have been great to mention that. That's an, it's amazing insight, Sam. I had not heard of that before. Jordan, it's hard because. What Jordan is saying is that, like, not necessarily that Karl Malone wasn't a good player and he didn't deserve the MVP. Jordan was saying that I want to be better. I want to show you that you made a mistake. Like, there's a slight difference, right? Like, he's saying that this is, if this is what you guys consider good or what you guys consider great, I got to step up and then show you what great really means. It's a negotiation. And, like, I find the Jordan thing really inspiring. Like, I don't find it mean or petty. Like, I wish more filmmakers would come out and say, like, look, I want to be better than Spielberg. I'm like, all right, let's go down this road. I'll go with you. I want to see what you do. Or, like, I wish that other writers would come out and, like, I want to mash up Stephen King. I want to be better than Stephen King. Jordan was negotiating what the what the definition of great was. We kind of just have um, – we kind of get lazy with our definitions. I don't know if I completely agree because I think within at least uh, creative – industries i think there's room for everybody to kind of lend their personal voice or personal styles to something whereas in sports it's a pretty clear-cut winner loser situation somebody's got to win somebody's got to lose whereas in in movies even as a commercial venture it's sort of like you know you make x amount of money at the box office you're kind of you're pretty good and they're going to keep giving you work and you can still do like good work as time moves on. But it, yeah. I don't think like, um, you know, like Coppola, can you say Coppola is a better filmmaker than, than Spielberg? Well, the kind of different styles. 
So there, I think in that world, there's enough room for both of them, but. Yeah, I mean, I think publicly, that's not something that you necessarily would find or need for filmmakers and writers, uh, artists in general to do. I think internally, you can do that to keep yourself motivated and keep yourself moving in, you know, forward and uh, in terms of setting know, a standard, setting a standard for yourself. But I don't know that it, it's very helpful to, to put that out uh, in the, in the, uh, in the world where it's like, you're, you know, trash talking, you know, Christopher Nolan's trash talking and my channel on, Oh, that would be fun. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be fun. I don't know that that, that necessarily works or that analogy really applies. I think uh, this is purely comes down to sort of a competition, uh, winner, loser, winner takes all situation. And that's typically not the case uh, with uh, artistic uh, ventures. But, you know, to your point, Sam, it would be fun to watch at times. Uh, but I just don't know that it, it, yeah. it, uh, it really applies. Fair enough. So... Let's jump to a different topic then within the um, within the doc. The portrayal of P Pippin. There's been a lot of talk. Yep. Scotty Pippin himself has been silent about the whole thing. He has not been present on social media whatsoever. But here's a funny thing. Tyrese. <laughs> you know, has his little uh, Instagram videos. Oh, Tyrese. Of Pippin sitting there in his little, in Tyrese's backyard hibachi, watching The Last Dance. Yeah. Or his backyard Benihana, sorry, not hibachi. George Foreman Grill? Yeah. <laughs> and Pippin's just kind of like, I don't see Pippin like uh, throwing, you know, beer at the, the TV or anything like that. He's just kind of sitting there watching it. So it's kind of weird uh, on so many levels. But I guess if you look at the general... Uh, history of Pippin, it's kind of not unusual at the same time. So was Pippin fairly treated in the stock? I, I mean, I, I think as fairly as could be. I mean, I, I don't think there was anything said that wasn't already on the record. Uh, it was historically accurate. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, the only moments that I think people might have taken umbrage to is when Jordan maybe commented on things that Pippin might have done, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, failure of leadership, but that's on the record. I mean, that, that happened, you know, it, there, yeah. there was no dealing in rumors or, or, or hearsay. This is all stuff that he did that he admits to doing uh, in terms of, you know, some of his failings. Uh, so I think that whole notion is, is kind of ridiculous. I, I just don't understand it. I mean, and, you know, Pippin, I mean, maybe you guys have seen more, but I haven't seen much in terms of his, disagreement with it um and, and maybe i mean we don't i don't know what he feels but i don't think he was treated unfairly uh, i think he was you know he was interviewed he, he had he had every opportunity and he did you know provide his point of view you know on kraus on on kukoc on when the time where he decided to sit out and, and not play because you know he had a hissy fit he was given his opportunity to provide his point of view and that was left in the film so i don't see where this comes from really pippin's always contradictions though that's the problem pippin doesn't fit neatly into a box like the aggressive pippin that dunked on ewing and then walked all over him 
that's a great Pippin, and Jordan was able to win six championships with that Pippin. Yeah, and I, I think I agree too. I mean, the one the one moment where Pippin had a chance to kind of like maybe you know stay a little regret he he didn't and there was a real head scratcher i think across the board for most people who watched it it was like he sat out and uh during that whole tony kukoc play and he said you know he he admits so it's a mistake but then he also says uh but if i had to go back and do it all over again i would makes no sense yeah and i think everybody watching was like what and I, you know, and I tried to kind of figure out what that meant. I tried to interpret that. And I guess, you know, on the one hand, he just felt like he needed to believe in who he was. And he thought he was the most dangerous player on the team at that point. So I guess from a self-esteem standpoint, I guess I can understand that. But me, me, me also be coming from a no regrets kind of stance, right? Like, uh, you know, you can't change it. So, you know, I had no regrets. I'm not gonna, I would have done it the same way, but you know, we're at this point we're talking hypotheticals and you have, you know, hindsight. It's kind of weird to say that you, you do, you do you exactly do the same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, to, you know, to give, um, to make it more balanced, you know, I think the documentary highlighted a lot of great things about Pippin. And I think those who kind of pointed out how, it was unfair to him. Most, a lot of it, at least that I was paying attention to, were uh, media personalities, people on ESPN, and I think part of that is because Scotty is technically a member of the ESPN family. You know, he works on the jump a lot, and so a lot of them consider him a colleague, a colleague, and you know, just trying to support him. But at the same time, those people at ESPN, they were there when all this was going down back in the '90s. They saw the Pippin migraine, they saw the back spasm, they saw the sitting out and all that stuff. So, I don't know, it's just weird how, it just kind of shows you how fake uh, sports shows are, particularly like, I guess, you know, the debate shows. It's just like WWF wrestling, you know, it's just like somebody's gotta be the bad guy and somebody's gotta make the counterpoint. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, but like at the same time, Pippin, they show Pippin tough out, that back spasm at the end of the uh, game six. Uh, you know, they talked about his defensive prowess. Um, Jordan himself said Pippin was a pleasure to work with. So then when you when you kind of add that with the whole debate about Jordan being like a tough teammate, you know, you have to be one special player if Jordan thinks like you were a pleasure to play with. Six times, six championships. Well, yeah, and, and and for Jordan to say, you know, that I, I couldn't have done it without Pip, and that and that, you know, when in the back spasm game where he was like, "Listen, just tough it out. We need you on the court. Just be a decoy," because Michael knew uh, the importance of Scotty. I think I feel like this goes a lot. You know, a lot of this goes back to the idea of history and trying to either revi- revise history or to hold on to a personal perspective of history. You know, a lot of these guys you're talking about at ESPN are, are trying to just tell the same old stories they were telling back then, because that's all they knew. And that's, you know, maybe that's part of their identity. And, um, you know, a lot of this thing ends up being people trying to make the Scottie Pippen 
movie. It's, that's not what that is. It's not what it is. And you have to, you have to come into this accepting that this is a film about the bulls told to the point of view of Michael Jordan, their most important player and the most important player to play the game of basketball. You can't come into a documentary called The Last Dance about those 90s bulls and come at it from the point of view of Scottie Pippen. No one wants to see that because that's not what happened. Uh, I mean, so you can make that, uh, but it, it, it's not going to be interesting because he is not the, the, the focal point of the team. Uh, you can have a nice maybe sidebar about him, you know, try to incorporate his story as part of a whole, but he is not the alpha in this situation. He is, he is not the man. That was Michael Jordan. And I, I do think that being said, he did get his fair due. I think the problem ultimately with Pippen is that he's too many contradictions. And as we've kind of evolved with social media and different things like that, we like to put people in one simple category. Jordan is the alpha male, and then that's it. And we do this with like everybody. Like He's a Trump voter, and then we write that person off because we know everything we know about that person. I'm like, well, how do you know if he likes dogs or not, Like for example? like You don't know. And with Pippen, he's too many contradictions that it's just hard to put him into one simple category. Like I mentioned like the dunk on Ewing, right, which is super aggressive and super alpha male and something Jordan would do and the way he walked all over Ewing, that's very Jordan. And at the same time, he was also, like as Steve Kerr said, one of the most beloved teammates. Like he was going around and making sure everybody's okay and like having fun, like opposite of Jordan. So... And I think that's why people are struggling because it's hard to put Pippen in this one category, this one box and say, this is Pippen. And I'm like, Pippen's a contradiction. And that's what makes Pippen so good. He was a point forward. Maybe Pippen is just more complicated than Jordan was. You know, Jordan was so single-minded and single-focused. Jordan was simple. You simple, understand yeah. What, you understand where Jordan's coming from and you don't understand what he's trying to do. Pippen, exactly. Like, and that's why he's, it's, it's easy to mythologize and, and put up someone on a pedestal when they are easy to explain. Whereas, like you're saying, Sam, uh, Pippin was filled with contradictions. Uh, and and, and you're, in a way, you're sort of comparing Zeus <laughs> to Hercules. Like, you know, Zeus is, you know, a god, you know, and, mm -hmm. and uh, Jordan is kind of put up on that pedestal. And a number of times throughout the series, people refer to him as Black Jesus or, or God, um, whereas Pippin was more on, on our sort of level, you know, the, the, the earthly plane. Those are, yeah, that, that's exactly my feelings as well. Yeah, just George, uh, Pippin's story was more human, for sure. Emotionally complex, a lot of highs and lows. And you can even, even Pippin today, like when you see the, the kind of the current date interviews of him, there is a, I don't know if I don't know if I want to say melancholy. There's just something about his personality that is, you know, that he's kind of a soft dude, not soft in the sense of weak, but there, he is a sensitive guy. He's a thoughtful guy. Ultimately, I don't think this, any of it tarnishes, uh, you know, the way people view him as a player. He was a, an amazing player, but um, very human. Guys that um, cheaper by the dozen family that he had. I can't remember what number he was, in but there was like 10 kids or 12 kids or something ridiculous. And I don't remember where Pippin was in that order. He, I think he might have been one of the uh, boys. One of the youngest ones, though. 
yeah, whatever he was in, like that that's a dynamic. That's a whole basketball team. <laughs> right? So Pippen already knew the team dynamic because he grew up in it. So he knew how to like navigate different personalities and different people and stuff like this. And I think that's where that sensitivity comes from. Because especially when they were poor, because I think the dad had a stroke and the dad couldn't provide. Pippin knew how to be like sensitive at times and like maybe share things with, like Christmas time or something when they didn't have enough stuff. And other times when they had to be tough and demand things or whatever because they were poor and all that kind of stuff. So I think because he goes between those two realities, when he came to basketball, it was like, oh, I've already done all this. I know how to do this stuff. <laughs> it's like, this is my family. So, I mean, this brings up the question that... Um... I think Danny posed uh, earlier is that, you know, we've talked about Pippen, we've talked about Grant, Isaiah Thomas a little bit. Who who gets treated the worst at the end uh, of all this? Treated the end? Uh, well, I mean, who gets screwed over by the documentary uh, more than anybody else? But for me, like, and I, I kind of mentioned it earlier, it's Tony Kukoc. He, he was the X factor in a lot of those games. He was a six-man of the year award winner and that guy was ahead of his time because he was a six ten. but he's kind of like magic and i think they called him the euro magic johnson because he was 610 had great handle great passing ability had a flair and if he if kukoc had played for a different team maybe a less competitive team he would have been much more um, his skills would have been way more pronounced but uh, I think, you know, just with the, the psychological strength of of Jordan and Pippen and the hierarchy that was built there, like he never really got a chance to kind of shine as much as he could have. You know, that being said, he had a lot of great games himself. That was an early international player, too. So NBA wasn't quite as friendly then for those international players as there were now. And I think that added a layer. Yeah, well, it did. But, you know, what also added the layer was... Jerry Krause. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> I'm going to replace you with Tony Kugoj. Yeah, like, you know, Pippen was sitting on the sidelines waiting to negotiate a new contract while Krause is out over in Europe watching Kukoc play. Mm-hmm. And then he was just like, you know, drooling all over, all over Kukoc, saying he's the future. Of- he's the future of the franchise, yeah. I mean, I think so connected to sort of the whole Kukoc situation, I would say that in a way, I think Jerry Krause probably got screwed the most in all this, despite all his faults, and there were many. You know, part of it, the fact that he is no longer with us and was never able to speak, you know, on his own behalf, he ultimately became somewhat of the villain of the piece. And that may be a question too, you know, is he a villain? But, you know, they, and they tried to sort of soften it here and there where people would say, you know, look, at the end of the day, he was a GM for that that Bulls team and he was the one who put everyone together and he didn't always make it easy for everybody but he was the the one in charge and so maybe maybe he wasn't as bad as as people say he is what are you guys thoughts I think yeah with Kraus the the obviously the death thing because you don't know how he would have reflected on this like this is 20 years after right that's a lot of time and we've already touched upon the fact that like Horace Grant still kind of has some bitterness uh, of how he was treated. Isaiah Thomas, like that whole moment where like, but I met the criteria. <laughs> and then that lower lip quivers. Like uh, there's moments like that. It would have been interesting to hear 20 years later after he's had some time, um, how like Krauss would have felt about things if he would have done something different. 
if he would have like maybe been like nicer or kinder or whatever like that that's a real loss and unfortunately there's just no way to go back um and replace that but um i think at the end of the day we've touched upon this but he couldn't get out of his own way that was the problem too i think he was another one that when we talk about with horace grant Kraus wanted a lot more credit there was that one championship i can't remember which one it was documentary jumped around so much but they were pouring champagne over Kraus, and he was like the organization did it and the organization is so amazing and he was going on and on about the organization how skilled it was and it was incredible for the organization and we benefited and i'm like yeah but you were not on that court at all <laughs> it was the the bulls players yes they play for you but it was the bulls players like jordan pippen and the rest that like won that championship yeah, but you know, I, but okay, I have to somewhat disagree here because that is his perspective. I mean, that that's where he comes into the game. That's how he comes at it. I, I kind of feel like the, as a GM, he kind of has to give credit to the organization. Now, maybe not, that doesn't mean take away from what the team and the guys on the court did, obviously, but uh, he has to pay his respects to, you know, all the, the back end, so to speak. Yeah, but you start with the players, and then you work your way to the organization, though. No, that, no that's true. Drafting players is to like win the games. But you know, but that's some of that also could come down to you know this whole idea of the perspective and, and the editing, right? Like, I don't know what the whole clip was. Maybe he did say something about the team beforehand, and then, but because the the film had taken a certain point of view uh, or, or structure, that he needed to be, you know, the the heavy that they sort of shaped the edit such that you nice know, his comments are, um, are taken out of context. I, I'm, well, I'm going to disagree with that. <laughs> it's not like TMZ decided to do a piece or something, you know, it's, there were a lot of clear cut um, indications. I think in kind of the way you've put it before, Jake, it's, it's on the record, you know, and this, I think this is part of the, um, the struggle with this documentary and how people view it. People, it is definitely its own bubble. The, the game itself, the NBA, and what is happening in that world on the court. And then what is outside of that, your home life, you know, who you are as a human being and as a friend and whatnot. You know, a lot of them guys were saying, you know, Krauss wasn't a bad guy. You know, the way he, you saw the way he played with your kids. He was a nice man. But as a GM, he and he, you know, there was a lot of credit given to him. He did a, made a lot of good decisions. But the guy also got in his, like Steve Kerr said, he got in his own way. He just didn't know when to stop. And so, in that sense, within this kind of, you know, within that world of the court, I mean, I think he was the villain. Why are you saying after you winning five titles that? Uh, you know, Phil can go 82-0, and 0, and he's still not coming back. Yeah, there's no excusing that. There's no, certainly no ex right? excusing that. And then they go into that storyline even further, how, like, Krause's, I don't know, stepkid was getting married that summer, and they invited, he invited everybody on the team except for Phil. And meanwhile, he's grooming Tim Floyd. He's going fishing trips with him. And it took Jerry Reinstorf himself personally stepping over Kraus and saying, no, I want to go back for at least one more year. And he set up a one-year contract for Phil to return for that last season. And he did it over Kraus's head because it's like, no, Jerry, that's not, that's not the way it's not going to happen right now. 
and then somewhere midway through the last season, it was at it was like at All Star break. Krause went on the media and he said, he said again that, you know, we would love to have Michael back, but he's gonna have to play for a different coach. Couldn't get out of his own way. So, and, and I'm I'm sorry if the guy's not uh, he's not around to kind of defend himself and. But it could be same situation, similar to Isaiah. You know, Jordan would still have the same feelings. Like he can say that now. You know, you can kind of say, "Well, hindsight is twenty twenty. But at that time, you know, he could have turned it down a few notches, maybe. To to connect to that though, do you do you think that Reinsdorf is getting off too easy in all this? Like, was he really this sort of absentee owner who who basically, you know, showed up once in a while and and you know he because he was still, he's still alive, he was able to make himself look pretty good. Like he, he made sure to make, uh, to mention that he kept paying Jordan's salary while he was playing baseball because it was the right thing to do. And it's like, okay, you're just making yourself look good. But where were you when all this other shit was going on? Like I, you're telling me that you weren't in conversation with Krauss at all during all this uh, controversy. And so I think he gets off a little too easy. I feel like he doesn't, he wasn't asked a lot of really hard questions or if he was asked a difficult question, he was impressed. He wasn't asked follow-up questions. Uh, and I think uh, maybe, you know, and I said this, I think in episode one of, of the podcast was that he, he feels more like the emperor to the Darth Vader, <laughs> you know, like he's the guy pulling the strings in the background and, you know, Krauss is, is Darth Vader and uh, uh, anyways, I won't belabor that uh, <laughs> that analogy. Oh, but, <laughs> but the point is that I feel like he, he does get off a little too easy. At the end of the day, if we're talking about leadership, he is the owner. And, and he had certainly a relationship with Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson. I don't think he was just uh, off, you know, dealing with the, 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 the White Sox the whole time, especially when they were playing really well. I'm sure he had a lot of conversations with Jerry Krause that, uh, apparently he gave Jerry Cross a lot of rope. And so you have to take responsibility for some of what happened. And that's a fair question and it's a fair point. Danny, you brought up a, a good point earlier when you said like the first three-peat team was like the Mop Top Beatles. And I think we kind of always kind of overlook or forget that. Like the Bulls were a rock star team and that had never really properly happened. There was lots of players um, that were popular and teams that were really like well regarded and stuff like that. But in terms of like rock and roll circus, in terms of demand for tickets, that had never really happened until Jordan and the Bulls. And once everyone started kind of blowing up and the media started coming up, and not just media from like uh, America, sports writers, whatever, which was how Bulls and like basketball was normally covered, you were getting media coming from like all over the world trying to cover the Bulls. And I think once people start to see that, and I think that's what goes back to the Horace Grant beef, the the Jerry Krause beef, like everyone wanted a piece of that pie because it's like, I'm with the band. I set up the drums. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm part of the band. Yeah, I think to your point, like, or, you know, before that, that night, uh, Bulls team, like, you know, you could have, you know, an intensely celebrated team, but it was, it was kind of hyper local. Like, you know, in LA, the Lakers were, um, you know, the, the shit, yeah. uh, you know, in Boston, the Celtics were the shit, the Knicks in New York, but when Chicago and, and it was Jordan came a thing, it, it spread across. I mean, people in any city, they became these, you know, celebrities, like you're saying, rock stars. Then again, I think 
lends to the lends to the idea that these guys, especially Jordan, transcended basketball because it became an international phenomenon, a national phenomenon, then an international phenomenon. But they weren't prepared for it. That was the problem. They were they were expecting to run a basketball team, like you said, no different than they were running the Knicks or the Celtics or the Jazz or any other NBA team at that time. What they ended up running was this giant, like. I just keep going back to it like a rock band, how they would travel in and out and like go to hotels. And like we saw all the footage over and over again. Whenever they show up to a hotel, there'd be mobs of people and Jordan has to get through them. Uh, they have to have security with them. The guy with the perm and like all these different things that they never had to consider before for the general like basketball team. And so all of this was like they had to make it up on the fly. And this was really the first time they've had to do that. There is no template. <laughs> so I think they made a lot of mistakes. And that's what you're looking at in the last dance. Like now, teams are much more better run. And players that are like big, like LeBron James, their times are managed better. They know what to do. But it's because Jordan invented the template. Just as Jordan invented the template for advertising from McDonald's and Nike and everything like that. They had to invent all that. The Nike stuff just went a lot more smoother than the basketball stuff. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, I mean... Before Jordan, you know, if I'm sure, and I, you know, I, I don't, I can't speak to specific, uh, you know, evidence of this, but I get the sense that someone like Magic or, or someone would come into town, it wouldn't be a frenzy like like it was for Michael Jordan. It wasn't. It wasn't right. Like so, yeah, it was this total rock star thing where, it, and I think so. There was one moment, someone mentioned it. I think it was around the time of the Olympics where they'd never seen anything like this, where you know Michael would have to sort of put these headphones on just to focus because he's just you know how do you you know it's kind of like this idea of like why do rock stars go off the rails when they're not performing it's because they're so used to having 20,000 people adoring them at one time and uh you know that's one thing to to have it happen when you're on the court during a two-hour game or whatever but then off the court and your private life and everywhere you go uh it, it just it's an incredible thing. And that's something that, like you said, is, is something that really started with, with Michael Jordan. Uh, one little kind of funny side story about this whole, that occurred in this series was the whole flu game. And that ended up being Pizzagate. 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 And so the narrative out there has been, well, actually like Sam Smith came out and he it wasn't too long, like uh, just maybe a couple of weeks ago, he came out saying that, you know, he think Jordan lied on a few occasions in the documentary. And he said it wasn't anything big, but just little details here and there. But the one thing that he theorized was that he, th he really thought the, the pizza story was bullshit. Like he thought that Jordan might have had altitude sickness, but it would have sounded less masculine to say, you know, I have altitude sickness. So he decided to go for the more masculine, oh, I got food poisoning. Yeah. Okay. yeah. How would it look if Air Jordan had altitude sickness? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. That's funny. No, I, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Like for it, if for him, because the thing is, okay, if it was the flu, I mean, you don't recover from the flu as that quickly. Right. Like it was a matter of, uh, I guess, a couple of days. Right. Then, you know, they, they had the next game after that. Uh, I can't remember exactly how it played out, but 
and then you also have like there were you know his trainer was there his trainer corroborates the whole thing so yeah i don't know if i buy the whole pizza gate thing i'm 100 percent convinced it was poisoned like it was food poisoning like somebody from utah put some rat poison or something on the pizza some drano whatever it was that was in the store Okay, I mean, I don't know you. I mean, I don't know that I would necessarily even go as far as that whole conspiracy theory. It could just been, it could have just been a random coincidence that he got food poisoning. It, you know, it, it's not like he ordered a pizza from Pizza Hut, right? Like it was like a was yeah, it, it was Pizza Hut? Oh, was it Pizza? It was Pizza. <laughs> that was All the right. problem. That maybe that was a problem. It was just too greasy. The pizza was just yeah. too greasy. <laughs> But no, yeah, my beef is really with Sam Smith and this whole theory. It's just like, you know, yeah, okay. So, and, you know, uh, we touched on this, I think, in our last podcast, but the pizza guy, uh, you know, he, he surfaced and he did a, he filmed a few media interviews. And so there is a pizza guy. So, so if you count to believe Sam Smith, so what? So Jordan got together in a room with Tim Grover, one of the most respected uh, train basketball trainers uh, in the world. They got MJ's best buddy, and they got MJ's mom, uh, and this actor who's playing a pizza delivery guy. And they put him all in the same room and say, "Okay, here's our story." Yes. <laughs> it's like, like, I don't know, man, Sam. Like, what's going on, bro? I don't know. You have to also question motivation. Who has the most to to gain from this being a, a pizza, you know, pizza gate? story like you know i think sam, sam smith like, clearly does that's the exactly problem. exactly whether it was food poisoning or altitude sickness it doesn't matter he still played an amazing game whether it was altitude sickness like no one is saying that it was all completely fake that none of it happened that he was just putting on a show no regardless yeah. of how he was sick he was sick and you can call it altitude sickness you can call it food poisoning you could call it whatever I wouldn't give that, a rat's ass if it was like a hangover. It, yeah, exactly. Even if it was a hangover, it doesn't matter. The point is that he played a superhuman game uh, when it counted. And that should be the takeaway. So the, again, this goes back to this whole thing of people trying to you know, do this revisionist history, create you know, something that wasn't because it, it benefits them and their notion of what happened. LeBron. LeBron, right? Mm -hmm. It does not matter. Now, if someone was saying that he was not actually sick, that's a different story. But no one's saying that because, again, we saw him on the court. You know, there, there were witnesses. There were, you know, so no one's saying he wasn't sick. They're just saying they're complaining about how he was actually sick, which is a kind of a bullshit complaint and, and stupid. Yeah, and Utah lost the game and lost the series. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the other narrative that people overlook. Like you couldn't be defeat a guy who was either hangover, altitude sickness, or throwing up, whatever it was. Right. And at the, at the, yeah. At the end right? of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, Jordan won. So what? What did he have to gain by saying that? Oh yeah, I won, and I was, you know, I was super sick at the time. Like it doesn't matter. He won at the end of the day. Like why would he waste the time and energy to come up with this story about being sick? when ultimately it didn't matter because they won anyways. Right. And Utah also had the problem with, remember that when the, towards the last episode where Pippen had the bad back, the other uh, Utah series, right? So it's like, 
you couldn't defeat Jordan when he had food poisoning, hangover, whatever the issue was. You couldn't defeat with Pippen and a bad back. Like, that's it. Those are your, <laughs> like, if you're, you're not good at what you do. Like, there's no way around it. The Sam Smith thing, though, is irritating because, again, when we were talking about, like, Jordan created this whole, like, rock star template, it meant that he also created this whole cottage industry of people, like, writing books and making documentaries and all this stuff about him. And I think this is also feeds back into our beef uh, issue with, like, Horace Grant. Nobody's going to write a Horace Grant biography or, <laughs> or make, like, a documentary or anything like that, right? Like, it just, he doesn't get enough clicks basically right like i know there was no clickbait back then but everything jordan said or did was clickbait whether he actually said it or not he never actually said republicans buy shoes on the record until this documentary uh but it turns out that he actually did say it well, but he said it as a joke on thing, the bus. like he said it as a joke but th the problem was it was never reported that he said it as a joke it was never like it was context like, yeah the context was missing it was always jordan was cold or whatever it's like man but the point i wanted to make was that like Sam Smith should have gotten the Isaiah Thomas treatment in this documentary because he profited a lot off of Jordan and not all of it was like, quote unquote, for the love of the game or the pureness of it or however you want to phrase it. That's my beef. Yeah, true. And then even within this documentary, he was like, Sam Smith was saying, well, I didn't even know the book would like, I was just, just as surprised as everybody how popular yeah. the book was. Stop it. It was a book about Jordan. Come on. Right. From a Chicago beat writer. Come on. Mm -hmm. When One of the things we keep circling back to is the media narrative. And I find that the media didn't get enough criticism for the, for the way that they were portrayed in the documentary. It's a weird thing because Jordan wouldn't have been elevated without the media. But at the same time, the media wasn't, I don't want to use the f word fair, but they weren't honest in their intentions and they weren't honest in their agenda and how they portrayed Jordan. So they should have gotten some criticism for that. They were a bunch of Craigs. <laughs> yes, they were, yeah. Way to go, Craig. Way to go, Craig. <laughs> well, you uh, know, but this rest is, in this... peace. Right. right. Oh, yes, rest in peace. Well, I mean, this, but that also speaks to the fact that, you know, this was all happening at a time when the media landscape was changing as well. Yeah. You know, this was the era of, you know, the 24-hour cable news uh, had started by that point. And then you have, you know, ESPN becoming a, a huge thing. ESPN. They needed that. They needed content. And the best way to create contact with content was to, to fabricate, you know, outrage and much mm -hmm. the way it is now. So you can't sort of separate those two events historically either. And that was one of the big pushes for Jordan retiring the first time around. Because he was like, I've had enough of this shit. Like that just right before he retired, that was the whole like the media started getting on his case about gambling. And yeah, you know, Jordan, you know, the flaw of just being somebody who just gambled a little too much, started gambling with maybe the wrong kinds of people that he didn't even know that they were shady people. But it's like, you know, the guy gives you all his fucking time. And even to this day, a lot of like the the veteran media personalities, they, like, they kind of compared Jordan, the Jordan who was accessible back in the 80s and early 90s, the Jordan who was like distant, you know, after a certain point. Well, and that was because you all try to like, basically sabotage the guy's reputation. After a while, if the guy kept saying to you, I don't have a problem, but you kept reporting that shit and you start connecting the death of his dad to his gambling habits. 
It's like, fuck you, man. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the gambling thing was pretty well dealt with uh, in, in, the, in the last dance. Um, but, you know, the one thing I do wonder and, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this is that there virtually is nothing mentioned about his, you know, relationships and his, and his, with his wife and, you know, potentially mistresses and, and that sort of thing. Uh, do you think that, that should have been part of it or do you think that was off, appropriately off limits? I, I personally think it's appropriate off limits just because you don't want to drag the, um, you know, the wives or the ex-wives into the whole spotlight and the whole like mistresses and things like that. <laughs> the documentary is going to have to be like, you know, 40 episodes and then they're going to have to start listing everybody else's mistresses and all that <laughs> stuff. You know, Well, there was a famous, uh, you know, moment uh, on the Oprah Winfrey show where it was after one of the championships the whole team had come on to, um, you know, Oprah's show. And uh, she asked, uh, you know, Scotty Pippen about, you know, the sort of the party and, you know, so the off the court shenanigans that many players are known for. And uh, Scotty actually said, he's like, well, you know, anyone who says that there isn't uh, that stuff happening is basically lying. And, you know, he said that, well, you know, Michael Jordan is on the stage and and of course there there was that sort of implication that you know Michael did do some of that as well. But yeah, I mean, I think I think a you it would have taken the focus away from what the documentary ultimately was about. Um, I think there's that sort of gossipy sort of. I mean, I do. I mean, it may seem salacious and what have you, but I do think just on in terms of a psychological thing i think it is an interesting thing to delve into i just don't think how see how it would have been possible because uh you just would not have gotten anything out of michael about that and it would have jeopardized um what the film was ultimately about but it is interesting to see what these guys how these guys are able to perform while managing all this other drama outside of off the court uh that that uh, certainly takes a certain mental headspace and and, and sort of skill to do. Probably. That's where money helps too. Yeah, for sure. I think they lost an opportunity with the kids. The kids would have been more interesting to see. You like, know, they, they, they've done a lot of interviews uh, in, in connection to the documentary, but it would have been interesting to see more of their perspective for sure. Because yeah, how do you grow up with a dad? Like it was pretty clear that Jordan was putting in like hours and hours of time at the gym. So... You can't obviously raise kids. You guys have kids. I don't have kids. I'm assuming you got to put in more than 10 minutes a day with the kid. So sure. I don't know how if they resented it. But at the same time, like it's also for a short period of time. It's not like Jordan just working at a corporation. And he's like, once I get this promotion or something, I'll stop. Or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I know the kid can't rationalize it at that time. But he's like, look, I'm only going to do this till I'm like 35 or 37. And if you could just hang on, then we can like do horsey rides and playgrounds and stuff like that. You just got to hang on, though. Well, I mean, his uh, his uh, kids had done um, an interview and, and we can put this in the show notes. I think it was with um, the Breakfast Club and yeah, I think it was Jeffrey or, or Marcus. One of them uh, was talking about how they were playing. um they were horsing around in the bedroom. I think they're playing like uh, f- like football or something on like on their knees in in their in their parents' bedroom, and Michael's you know playing with them and he's super competitive with them. And these guys they're they're like seven or eight years old or something yeah. like that. And one of them, like Michael, tackles one of them and he hits his head on like this 
like night table and cracks his skull open and uh just blood everywhere and uh and it was just like oh shit like okay this you, we were just playing with your kids here man like chill <laughs> you didn't need to go that hard yeah. and apparently he got like 30 stitches or something like that it's pretty intense <laughs> Well, actually, this is a this is a good a segue into the ultimate question. Really, is what you think of the doc, the storytelling? I think, yeah, I think this is going to do a couple of things. One is we've already alluded to this. As short as it is, as it is, with only the ten parts, I think this is going to be one of the last Jordan proper statements that we get. I don't know how many more documentaries and things Jordan would be willing to participate in uh, moving forward, especially with the modern Jordan now, like doing those interviews and stuff like that that he did for this doc. I think he's probably said as much as he wanted to ever say on the record. I think if the doc ever like did have like DVD features, it would be interesting to put all the modern Jordan interviews just unvarnished and just like put a section of them just so you can hear them in a row uh, without the footage. So I think that's one thing is like, yeah, this is the final statement, I think, for Jordan from his perspective. I think it's also going to develop an appetite for people to have longer form documentaries. We just saw that with like the Vic documentary, which was two parts. The Lance documentary was two parts. The OJ Simpson was five parts, I think it was. So I think more people are going to like having longer documentaries. Yeah, there's already talk of a Tom Brady, you know, eight-parter. Yeah. And, and now a Tiger Woods which I think also speaks to, like, I don't think you could do a two-hour Tiger Woods documentary. I don't think you could do a two-hour Tom Brady documentary. I think to really show all that they've done, you need, like, a big chunk of time. And our frustration throughout this documentary was this part was too short, uh, or they should have put more highlight on this scene or that scene or, like, the Space Jam summer. More nuance. Yeah. And that was ten parts, right? So, like... Yeah, I understand budgets, I understand time, and I understand all these factors and stuff like that. But I'm like, the players that are coming up now, like a Derek Jeter or something like that, for example, he needs a documentary. Wayne Gretzky needs a documentary. And I don't know that you could do that with just like a two-hour thing. But to have a skilled filmmaker, I think that's going to be the rare part. Like this guy was able to balance all these things with the nostalgia, the modern Jordan, ask good questions, and great editing montages with the soundtrack. That's a great package. You're not going to get a lot of directors who are going to be able to pull that off and do it well. Yeah, listen, I mean, I think I think it's a masterpiece as far as um, sports documentaries go. I, you know, I do agree. I wish there were moments where there was a little more time, a little more um, detail given, uh, and maybe even spend a little more time on providing context for just how incredible some of this stuff was. You know, up until this point, I mean, for me, the O.J. Simpson, you know, Made in America docuseries was just, you know, the top of it. And in, in some ways, I think it still is because it, that story of O.J. is such, so ultimately batshit crazy. <laughs> but what it does really well is that it, it provides an amazing context for that, that individual's life and career. Um, in a way that I think this documentary sometimes skimped on because they were trying to maybe do too much or, or get too many perspectives in. And it's not necessarily a knock, it's just the nature of what this thing was. But for me, the, the OJ Made in America was just 
you know, it's just it's something on a different level. And, and, you know, mind you, that story lends itself to, to that a little more. This was hyper-focused, which was great, and which was really, you know, its strength in terms of what, it is, what it's about. But that being said, a little more historical context in, in terms of just how amazing this team and this, these, this group of men and, you know, Jordan himself was, uh, would have been great, you know, to see a little more of what, was be- what came before and what we have now and sort of where Jordan stands in that sort of historical arc uh, would have been great. And then I don't mean to sound, make that sound like an art, uh, a knock. I really do think it's, 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 it's a masterpiece. I just wish we, we could have more of it, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and that would be exactly my point. Uh, I like this documentary and I liked a lot of the certain techniques and aspects of it, but then I think, and I think I said this in our first podcast, I think it's a blown opportunity. I think this is, it's Michael Jordan. So I, I, I don't see why you need such budgetary restrictions. This thing could have been multiple seasons and each season covering at least one game, one season of each of those dynastic years. In that, I think it could have lent more nuance in the sense that you can really, it could still really be that Michael Jordan documentary and you would get more out of Michael, but you would also get more of the perspectives of everybody that was on that team and more details of what was really going on behind the scenes. I felt like, you know, this documentary is amazing for people who didn't really grow up watching Jordan or who like people who weren't real fans. But a lot of it was kind of like, okay, yeah, this is stuff that we kind of know. They And then they went into a little bit, you know, it, it wasn't just like one sentence, you know, they, they kind of formed it into a little longer paragraphs, but it still wasn't for me enough new and um, new things in there and just didn't give the full picture uh, like like you guys are kind of mentioning. So you blew it, man. I, that's what I really think. I just think that it's Michael Jordan. And like, in house, and like you said, Sam, it's kind of like this might be the last opportunity for you to really get, you know, this kind of content in this much detail from Jordan. So it's kind of like, why not just give more? So, I mean, if I could just sort of add to that, like, I mean, I feel like, you know, and I know you ultimately have to judge it on what it is on its own merits. You, you know, what the circumstances were ultimately don't, you can't judge it by that. But I will say this, he only had Jordan for, I think, two or three interviews. He had, you know, every film, no matter the subject matter, has a budget. And so you do what you can with that budget. Uh, So I can't really knock him on that. But the things that I think where I was talking about in terms of providing more context, that a lot of that could have been done pretty cheaply. You You didn't have all the time in the world with Michael. So he got what he got. That, so some of that's on Michael, I think. But well, I'm gonna like, and it's not so much an attack on Jason Ayers, so much more about the actual pre-production of it. Obviously, it's a whole village of people 
who are trying to uh, come up with a concept for this thing. And I think initially didn't start off as a 10 episode thing. It was like, you know, X amount of episodes and then said, no, we need a little more. And then it was going to be eight. And then it grew to 10. But even Jason Ayers uh, said it himself. He kind of, at first, he didn't think he could even make a 10 part documentary using most of the footage that was there that was just originally shot in that 98 season. I don't, you know, obviously I haven't seen the footage, but I think you could have formulated a, a richer story with it. So it's not just, it's not a knock on the director and using whatever kind of parameters that he's given, but it's really more like all the backers of this thing, all the executive producers and things like that. This is just, it's a bigger story you're talking about. And if you're trying to make it the Michael Jordan documentary on top of the, uh, the storyline of the 90s Bulls dynasty, just don't see how 10 episodes is enough. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, they also ran into the you know the whole pandemic thing, so they they kind of ran out of time as well. Uh, you know, but that's the one of giving last... more episodes. No, well, I mean, what I was going to say is that, like, you know, ultimately, like those last couple episodes maybe could have had a little more oomph to them if they had hadn't had to rush those edits uh, near the end there, or, or with the circumstances of of being on lockdown, they they were they were cutting. You know, edit, the editors were you know, had to move all their suites to their homes and they were cutting off of, you know, drives and stuff like that. So, you know, we'll never know. But uh, I mean, I do agree with you. Uh, certain aspects, I think, were, were missed opportunities. The pandemic point is valid because the timing of when we saw it as well is forever going to color it. Like this wasn't a traditional like 30 for 30 that you just see on a Sunday or Monday afternoon or something like that. It was in this weird period of time where we were all in lockdown, there was no NBA, all sports had been shut down, and people were hungry for basketball and for content. And so it colors the experience. For us, a lot of this doc was nostalgia. So it's like looking back uh, at a simpler time when we were trying to figure out what our life was going to look like moving forward, whether it was going to be a new normal or back to normal or whatever it may be. And at the same time, for the younger kids, it was like this introduction to Jordan, as you said, Denny. Like it was a kind of a cliff notes of like, this is all the stuff the guy did. He's really cool. Now go forth and Google it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I agree. I mean, it's the pandemic, you know, you can only, I mean, you can say what you want about the last few episodes and the kind of circumstances they're under, but that's still like by that point, the structure's already, you know, already established. So for me, it's really more like at the, at the stage of how do we structure this thing? Uh, this is a, uh, it's, it's just, I keep saying, I just, I can't think of any way. It's just a blown opportunity. And just the fact that, I mean, and I can't, I don't mean to repeat myself, but with Sammy, you saying that this is probably the last chance you're going to get to have Jordan sit down with you like this. Now, so my, no, if they had pre-planned this in a way that it was a multiple uh, series thing or a multiple season thing, then you obviously would try to schedule more interviews with Jordan or longer periods of interviews with Jordan. And whether he agreed with that or not, then then that can be, you know, the thing that kind of helps you determine how long this thing could be. But But the one pushback I would give you is that with the doc it was all done. And so as it came out and people got angry about this or Pippin did this or Horace Grant went on the radio, like if you start to do seasons 
they would maybe correct some of those narratives. Maybe not necessarily for the best, but at least for this way, when the doc is done, you're arguing with the static document. You can't really make any changes or anything like that. You can't say this was fair or unfair. Does that make sense? Mm. Not really. Can you say that again? Like, okay, so like in comic books, you read it monthly, right? And as people react to what's happening that month, the writer can kind of keep making changes. Oh, so you like this character. I can give you more of this character. You know what I mean? Like, they might have been influenced by some of the social media pushback, by the media narratives and stuff. If they did, like, longer episodes or if they did, like, seasons, as you were saying, they would have influenced the the flow, the emphasis of the characters, the emphasis of the structure. The, that might have also influenced um, the way that they ultimately would make it if it was longer. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with Sammy. Like, you know, I don't think you know, for the documentary of this kind, for you to be, I don't think it's possible to do something in seasons, even if there's a lot of material there, because people, your subject matters, will start reacting to the reactions. The seasons that follow, you may not get the most honest information. So you kind of, do need the, these constraints of like, okay, I've got you for these three hours, like in the case of Phil Jackson, tell me what you believe is true uh, about the 90s Bulls. And then you've captured what his honest thoughts are uninfluenced by anyone outside that moment. So I, I think it would be a huge challenge for a, a docuseries uh, where people are talking about their history to really work uh, in the most honest way possible if, if people are going to be able to have the time, like Sammy's saying, to correct their, correct the record, so to speak, or, or, or change the histories to fit the reaction. But that's, that's, you're assuming that, uh, like, you know, season one is shot and done in the can and edited and then broadcast, and then they go back and shoot season two and season three like that. No. It's like, this is a documentary. So you sit down with the people for as long as you can. You talk about whatever you need to talk about, about those times, right? But how you spread out that information, you get it all in the can. And then how you broadcast that stuff and how you spread it out is that's in the post-production. No, right, but no, but 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 what, what Sammy's saying is that like, Okay, so say you do that, right? Then the subject matters have said what they have. It's in the can. But there is a temptation from the studio executives to the filmmakers that, to react to the reaction. And, if, and then it, that changes the, the, the film. And, and, Once again, that assumes that you are, uh, you're, you're a constant work in progress. Like yeah, you're but, talking about airing that, you know, certain X amount of episodes while cutting, while still cutting other episodes. But, I mean, that's, just, but that's the nature of the production. Like no one's going to give you the Netflix money. puts like a whole season, like in one shot, they release every episode in one sitting. Right. right? So that means everything was edited yeah. and done and cut and before anybody can react to it. So yeah, but that similar that's, things can be but done. They don't do that this. for documentaries. They don't do that. But for doesn't, documentaries. Like, you can't, you can't say you can't do that. Why can't you do that with documentaries? No, what I'm saying is you, I mean, you can do anything, but I, I just don't think that you would get the most honest product. The scheduling would be murder. It doesn't matter. You're editing until it's done and then you release it strategically. Yeah, but how many seasons are you going to, uh, how many seasons well, of the show is Netflix going to sit on? Why not? 
But why wouldn't you do that? I just don't think the, the, the I just don't think production, the economics and the production workflows work that way. I just don't think that's possible. I mean, you're talking about in an in a ideal, ideal world. Yeah, sure. But I just don't see how that's even possible. What ideal world? We live in a Netflix world now. A whole season is, is, is released all at yeah. once. So, no, we're not like waiting okay. each week. Yeah, exactly. what I'm saying is so if these, seven, if these you know, ten, 10 episodes were season one of The Last Dance, right? Mm-hmm. You're telling me that they released season one and they would also have season two in the can and just, they'll just sit on it for a, a six months and then release season two? Like, not six months. Uh, well, until you finish... Whatever, however you schedule your release but, or episode, right? It's right. just like one comes right after the other. So whatever, however you time that out, that's up to you. But it's like, you can have, let's say, I don't know, just for argument's sake. And, it, and now, and I'm not arguing the minutia of, you know, multiple seasons. I'm talking about it needed more episodes than this. So whether... Okay, more episodes I can agree with. More episodes I can agree with. But seasons, uh, I just don't think that would work. Well, okay, well, then that's not a detail that I'm necessarily, like, you know, married to. But I'm just... The idea that that would be so... But what I'm saying is the time in between, whether they were all cut and in the can, there's going to be a temptation to make changes to that, that next batch of episodes based on reaction or, or or water it down or get weak like i i think for docuseries like that in this uh sort of vein wouldn't work that way i mean i i can I, i'm 100 percent with you if you if you're talking about releasing all you know 12 episodes instead of 10 episodes at once great but if you're trying to say that you know you would to all seasons at once. I, I think there's there's that time in between of releasing, whether you have it all cut and ready to go or not, to potentially make changes based on reactions from the public. But this documentary is weird because it is going to create an appetite for longer form. So in a sense, it took the hit for the team by being like 10. Uh, this was longer than even the um, OJ documentary. So I think future docs will be longer. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Tom Brady one does go like 12 episodes or something. Or the Tiger Woods one uh, goes 10 or 15 or whatever, like the magic numbers. I think the Tiger Woods one certainly would be able to go longer. Brady, I don't know. I don't yeah, know about don't, Brady. Yeah, and that's the thing. I, I don't like those guys, Tiger and uh, Brady, are guys who transcended their sport. But I don't know if they transcended viewers. Tiger Woods would count for that because he was the black guy on the golf course. So he pulled in a lot of people. There's much more there, yeah. Yeah, no, no, like definitely compared to Brady. I guess, you know, obviously I'm tainting it from my own lens. Like as amazing as all the stories of Tiger and all that stuff that I saw and the accomplishments, it it still wasn't enough to make me like a regular golf watcher. Oh, no, Tiger Woods did that though. Not for you, but for a lot of other people. No, I no, I'm I'm not disagreeing with that, but I'm just saying on Michael Jordan's level still. Mm, Michael Jordan's still a rare case, though. Michael Jordan's so he's so isolated. Like it's just like I think that's one of the biggest takeaways I have from this doc. I don't want to do that thing where we call Vince Carter or Kobe the next Jordan. I'm not gonna do that again. Like Jordan was Jordan. That's it. Like that's all you get. Oh, yeah. Like Prince was Prince. 
lots of people make music and lots of people make funk music and lots of people make cool music and great music. But Prince was Prince and Jordan was Jordan. And that's it. Like you get one Jordan. Um, and there's a lot of great players now. And I, I like watching Curry play and tons of fun or whatever. He's a great player and he should go in the Hall of Fame. No problems with any of that stuff. But Jordan's Jordan. That's it. Yeah. And, well, and that kind of goes back to the point of for, for me anyways, that why this thing should have been plotted as something longer than this. I know 10 people saw 10 and like, oh shit. And that hasn't been done before, but. You think it would have helped to have some sort of a narrator or a sort of some sort of a device that would help with providing more of those moments that he may not have gotten in the interviews? Maybe just more inserts that, that sort of explained things or, or maybe more montages about not necessarily on the court. Like all the montages were uh, as amazing as they were, were on the court montages, but maybe creating more montages about the time and place would have helped really give it more of that uh, context and, and, and detail that we, we would have loved to see. We talked about this before too, with the timing, like they shot this footage in 97, 98, but they sat on it for 20 years, basically. So again, it's the it's the tension of what you're talking about, Denny, where like how many years after Jordan retired would it have been wise or smart to put this out? Could they have done it like right after the last dance and just done like a simple one and a half hour documentary like they did all the time back in the day and called it a day? So I think that that timing, that was also a factor too. The fact that it took about 20 years for it to come out and more people needed to remember who Jordan was or be introduced to Jordan because they had grown up with Kobe and LeBron. It's the same tensions that a lot of the Star Wars movies have, right? Like Return of the Jedi was like, what was it, 84, 86 or something? And so then by the time Phantom Menace comes along in 99, it's like you now have to reintroduce a whole group of people to Star Wars. And this is what a lightsaber is. And this is the Force, right? And we're like, we know, we know. Like get to the whole like Anakin Skywalker thing. See... From my point of view, I would have loved a balance of all the guys who are on that team. And I'm sure that a lot of people would have done that too. And I don't necessarily think viewership would have gone down as long as you sprinkle Jordan in there enough. Yeah, like we didn't really hear much from Ron Harper. Nope. You know, Luke Longley, people have been talking about him uh, not being in it at all. Craig Hodges. Yeah, or, I mean, Ron Harper had, I think, maybe literally one line in the whole thing. Yeah. It was a good one, though. It was a good one, but... Fuck that shit, or whatever he said. Yeah, it was something like that, yeah. Yeah, what we're ultimately talking about now is how you immortalize these people. Like, again, because Jordan was the template. He was this first player that was, like, the superstar... You could do a simple hour and a half documentary with magic. And there's been a couple of magic documentaries and Showtime documentaries. And you could do them really simple and really well done. And then you can kind of go on your way. Uh, the 80s Celtics had some great teams. And you could do simple documentaries. Recognize Bird, Recognize McHale, the Parish, all those teams. Great. And then go on your way. Bad Boys have a 30 for 30. It's a really good documentary. I recommend people watch it. That's all you need. But Jordan was so... There's so many different aspects of it it's like um when we were kids and you would have money in your hand and you just dump it on the counter and it's like i got this much money and jordan's got like i got this many themes i got this many images i got this many things 
and it's hard to like kind of condense it all into like a digestible form uh, as a memorial. The one thing I really did miss, which I would agree with in terms of blown opportunities, is I could have taken an entire episode where they just talked to Jordan about his day. What time he would wake up? What was the first thing he would do? How many how many free throws would he shoot before you know? Like you know, in there's that idea of like the bottle episode, like in, in this in a season of a show where you have this one episode which doesn't really have to do with the broader story, but it's just this bottled episode that is just its own thing. Mm-hmm. And I could have taken a, an entire episode of just him and his trainer talking about the the training that yes. that i think would have totally taken this thing over the edge for me because that is really ultimately what i was hoping for going into this thing is to really get into the weeds about that with that stuff because that's the stuff that made him who he was and i feel like they they just didn't give it enough love you know we, we've talked about kobe kobe's co- the couple of documentaries that, that kobe did which were essentially those kind of documentaries you know, uh, Muse and then um, Kobe doing work. Like that's the kind of stuff I think that was a really huge blown opportunity. Like he, they, he should have just sat and talked to Michael for an hour about what was your day like at your peak? What did you eat? How much did you sleep? Yep. You know, what, what drills did you run? Tell me about, you know, the weightlifting. Tell me about the cardio you did. Tell me about the all that stuff. That's the stuff that I think I, I would have been amazing to see. And he had his trainer. He had MJ. Like that's the stuff that would have just taken this over the edge and really cemented for today's audience just how great Michael Jordan was. Because that's the shit that made him great. And and people, I think that's why there's still this debate about you know, well, was he as great as he was? Was he all talk? Is like. No, motherfuckers, he did the work. He put in the work and he talks about it. He goes, none of the endorsements, none of the shit matters if I didn't have the game. And that game came down to the work ethic and the, the, the practice and the hours and hours and hours and days of just doing the fundamental work of it. When his body broke down, uh, his mental game took over. What was it that he did to become so mentally fit? Like what were the psychological things that he did that kept him so exactly. ahead of everyone else? That's the stuff that would have been amazing. Yeah, this documentary, a lot, like any of the stuff about his mental process were all from third party, sports writers. Jordan made up this story just to get himself motivated. Jordan, Jordan would always do this to get himself motivated. Well, let Jordan talk about it. No, that's a great point. Yeah, that's you know, that, that's a perfect example because like there's that uh, great moment where they talk about him making up this this beef that he had with Lebadfer Smith, but they never ask Michael about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you, that's literally what you're building up to. Like you're like, oh well, no, actually this was a June. This is what happened. This is what he said, and this is this legendary moment that everyone talks about. It's like okay, all right, and now you're gonna cut to Jordan on the record about it no no it doesn't do it mm-hmm. but it, yeah and again you know we all know that some of this is just like you know you find a certain moment in the edit and then you realize well we never asked michael about it but uh it's just yeah you just wish they could have gone 
uh, you know, that extra mile with, with things like that? I think, you know, and, you know, I can't help but kind of look at it from, you know, a narrative point of view. Like, when you watch a certain kind of show, let's say Seinfeld, right? You watch it, the show is called Seinfeld. The star of the show is Jerry Seinfeld. And he's a comedian and he's funny and shit like that. But as the show moves on, you start to love the other characters. And to a certain degree, after a while, the star of the show becomes a straight man. And everybody one else is a bit of a stooge to a certain degree. Right. And I think that could have worked for the last dance. Are people gonna watch it for Michael? Yes. Do a lot of people know? Michael was great, yes. And then to your point, Digger, the stuff that would have been, that would have gripped those who knew he was great was how and why was he great. But then when you take characters like Dennis Rodman, Scotty Pippen, Horace Grant, Steve Kerr, Tony Kukoc, even the, the kind of smaller guys, Cliff Levingston, uh, fucking Ron Harper, Ed Neely, whoever, man, like, Will Purdue. Will Purdue. Even like ex-teammates from the 80s. Dave Corzine, man. Like Brad <laughs> Sellers. All those guys, right? Those guys still kind of brought nuance to either characterizing Jordan or characterizing the time. So, and then I guess in the sense that if I think to, if multiple seasons, if you can do like a lot of episodes, multiple seasons, I guess could have helped with fatigue and kind of keeping them wanting more. It's weird. When we look back at our life, we've never been in a situation like the Bulls where what you're doing is going to be like such a historical record. So you don't realize at the time that you're doing it that all this is going to matter to people later on and down the road. Again, they were just a basketball team, an NBA team like any other NBA team. They had practices. They did these things. It started every year to win a championship. The first couple of years, they kept running the Pistons and they didn't win a championship. Like... You don't realize like those little decisions were like after they get eliminated from the Pistons, like they go the next day to the workout room and they start working, that this is going to be the start of something significant. Now, when you look back at it, you're like, that's the moment you could circle that. But at the time, they're like, we're coming back for them. They had no guarantee or know that it was going to work out. Right. So it's it's a weird thing to also look back and realize what they contributed. All those guys that you just talked about, Denny, like. You're going through it at the time, and you don't realize how big or how important this all is going to be. Mm -hmm. no, that's a, no, that's a great point. And sorry, I don't mean to keep harping on this, guys, but just, I mean, Jager, something that you said, you know, oh, I could have used a whole episode of this kind of a moment. You know what would have been pretty fucking insightful is that you do a whole episode of Jordan, of that season when Jordan was not there, or that season and a half. Yeah. Because, I mean, a, a lot of narratives, what is it, you, at least in the shows that I like and the movies that I like, it's like when you kind of gravitate towards the misfits. And now, like, the star is gone, man. How are the misfits uh, elevating? You know, and they had a great season, that first season. And the drama of that itself into the bigger picture of it all is just like, it's, I don't know, it just, <laughs> I want to hey. know. Yeah, that would you know that would if they did have an episode about that, about that moment where you know Jordan was not there, it would have made his return that much more dramatic. 
That's right. Because uh, you could have constructed it in a way where you could have said, okay, like this is, everything was kind of coming off the wheels. And, uh, you know, the wheels were coming off the bus and, you know, they were struggling to find a way to make it all work and it wasn't ultimately happening. And then you, you know, you cut to Jordan on the baseball field, right? Mm -hmm. And and you sort of show that, okay, this is it's kind of like that negative relief kind of thing where it's kind of like, you take something away to 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 create to create you know how its importance, and then you come back to you know him returning to the game, and he's like, I know I'm back. It would have just been so much more dramatic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can definitely see how that that would have been helpful. Yep, it's one of those things that you wish that uh, ESPN or NBA Entertainment would just like. Just give, give the, the world the footage. Put it on a server somewhere. Let people ask, access it. Just Get it on YouTube. Own, Let us see. <laughs> cut their own version of The Last Dance. That would be fucking amazing. That would be amazing, yeah. So what, what do you guys think happens from here? Like, what, what's going to happen with, uh, you know, we've touched on this earlier, but, like, ultimately, what do you think, uh, you know, we, we now are in a world... The, the, there was a world before the last dance and there was a world after the last dance. And uh, do you think there are going to be more stories about that period? Or do you think that uh, this, this film is ultimately the last word? And should it be the last word if it is? In a weird way, it is going to be the last word, like proper on the record, but there will still be more stories. There will still be more um, interviews. There will still be more beefs. Isaiah's not going to let the Dream Team thing go away. There's going to be a lot more relitigation. But ultimately, because it's 20 years ago, it's done. Like, you can't put Isaiah Thomas now on the Dream Team. Like, that moment's gone. So regardless of how he feels about it, it's done. So in a weird way, it is the last statement. Um, Jordan's always been kind of reclusive. He's been a lot more outspoken lately. So I think this for him was like, I got to get some things off my chest. If he ultimately feels, and that's the big thing, if he ultimately feels that he said that everything that he wanted to say and it was received the way that it was received, the way that he wanted it to be received, then he's not going to say anything else. Like, he's done now. He, he was a mic drop for him. Which is insane that people still watching this are still consider LeBron James, like, better than Jordan. I'm like, I don't know what you saw or what you missed or what edit you got <laughs> on Netflix or whatever. But I'm like... You're wrong. Like, there's no other way around it. You're wrong. Yeah, it's kind of funny. We live in that. Uh, we now live in the age of analytics. In a lot of the basketball world, they use analytics, advanced stats, and all that stuff to kind of measure greatness. Whenever there's a debate, well, it's like, well, Jordan's got six rings, and LeBron's got how many? How many's got now? Three. Three. Yeah. And that's great, you know. But even if LeBron ends up getting six rings. Then people say, well, okay, now he's, uh, he's pretty close. Well, no. How did he get those six rings? And how many asterisks are there in his career? Jordan, there's no asterisks, man. He did it with the team that he was drafted by. Mm-hmm. He never gave up hope. He never joined no super team. And some of these fools nowadays even argue, well, well, the you know, the, the second three-peat team was kind of a super team. They got Scotty and they got Dennis. Well, Scotty was drafted by the Bulls. And Dennis was like, 
I forgot how old he was. He was like he was yeah, mid thirties. He, he had a whole career on, uh, at Detroit before he even came to Chicago. Yeah, they picked him up from the Spurs, and he was fucking up on the Spurs. He was just fucking. Oh, up. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and so you know, most teams consider him as a has been. Yeah, this really should reset a lot of the Jordan narratives, and it's disappointing that some of them didn't get reset. Mm-hmm. And we saw this throughout the doc where people like doubted Jordan or like, well, okay, he's got three or four rings. He won't win this time. He won't win this series. He won't whatever. I'm like, I don't understand how you can be comfortable. Like even going into the last dance, it's pretty clear that the team was incredibly focused and were determined. And maybe they would have gotten to the finals and lost that finals or whatever, but they would have put up a good hard fight. They weren't going away. We don't have that anymore. We don't have people that are like money. One of Jordan's nicknames was Money, right? <laughs> like, that's so rare and so wonderful. People forget that a lot of what happens now is manufactured. Yes. And, you know, Jordan, like you said, he did it with the team that he was drafted with. And nowadays, what happens is if it's not working a couple of years in, they're looking to to move to – I mean, look at what happened with, with, with Toronto and um, – Kawhi? With Kawhi, right? Like, I mean, it's not exactly the, the right example there, but what I mean is like, you know, like LeBron, it wasn't working for him. So he moves to a different team, like, and creates these, you know, super teams where it just becomes very manufactured. Whereas what Jordan did was it was kind of the impossible. Mm-hmm. He rebuilt the team that he was drafted into twice. Mm-hmm. And that's what, what, what makes him the greatest. You know that, amongst other things, that there's a purity to it that that just doesn't exist anymore because the business has gotten so big. You know, in, in many ways, this is similar to you know people blaming George Lucas and Steven Spielberg for the blockbuster mentality of of movies, uh, and, and Coppola as well, because you know those filmmakers you know, made these movies, but they were purists. They were pure filmmakers. They came out of film school and all they wanted to do was make movies for movies. It just so happened that they did it so well that it changed the business of movies. And then everyone tried to manufacture and recreate that success. And I feel that's what's happening now with, with basketball. It's sort of like, you know, Michael Jordan came onto the scene for as a pure basketball player and had nothing to do with the business had nothing to do with endorsements. It was all a byproduct of the purity of his game, uh, much in the way something like the Godfather had become this massive blockbuster. But Coppola was this film student. He was a first time director. Uh, I mean, in terms of his first studio film and it was a nightmare getting that film made, but it became this phenomenon Uh, Steven Spielberg made Jaws and it was an incredibly difficult film to make. Uh, He thought it was going to end his career, but it became this, um, again, this huge blockbuster and changed the way movies were made and the type of movies were made. Same with Star Wars. Star Wars almost killed George Lucas uh, and it again changed the game. And, And so then what happens is you don't have more pure filmmakers like that you just have more of the business side of it trying to recreate these lightnings in a bottle Mm -hmm. and and i feel that's what essentially has happened is that the business has taken over in a big way kobe had that great line where he said everything that you see from me i got from jordan 
And that's kind of what you're talking about. We're like, we live now in the shadow of Jordan. And so even though people are new generations are coming up and they're, they like Kobe or they like LeBron or they like Curry, there needs to be more historical context where like, you understand who built this entire infrastructure. It was Jordan. I obviously like Larry Bird and magic and stuff built some of that too. But it's interesting that when Gretzky uh, retired, they retired his 99 across the entire NHL. So every team retired 99, right? Like it's done. Like nobody can wear 99 anymore. And I felt like they should have done that with Jordan. Like they should have like once he retired, everybody should have like retired 23 and nobody can wear 23 anymore. You can still have 45 if you want, but 23 is done. I think the Heat did that. Yeah, they did that. Yeah. So random. (laughs) But that's respect, right? Pat Riley. Respect. Yes. But yeah, especially in the age of social media, everybody's just worried about their own brand and their own image. I mean, everyone's, you know, everybody was always concerned about their own image, but the ability to control one's image nowadays is in an outrage culture. It's so much easier in a lot of ways. Well, we should wrap it up. This was a long episode. Okay. Does anybody have any recommendations before we sign out and I drop the rap line? Well, I'll go with a quick one and uh, hope this doesn't come across too cheap. But for those who didn't catch the Lance documentary and who don't know much about Lance uh, Armstrong, man, if, you got, if you're one of those people who thinks Jordan is a bully, <laughs> then like Lance Armstrong is fucking Satan. Yeah. <laughs> so check it out. Hundred uh, percent. So there's the the two part Lance Armstrong uh, thirty for thirty. Is it guys? It's a thirty mm-hmm. for thirty, right? Uh, I would also recommend um, Alex Gibney made a film about Lance Armstrong as well, which again to uh, to Denny, uh, DC's point, uh, man, he was just terrible human being. <laughs> like <laughs> just, uh, I don't even know where to start with that guy. So yeah, you cannot uh, call Michael Jordan a bully uh, when compared to what Lance Armstrong was. Uh, but what I would recommend, something I talked about earlier uh, in, in this uh, episode, is um, I would highly recommend OJ Made in America. Yeah, it is a masterpiece as well. Uh, it, it does a really great job of of creating the context of the time and place uh, that OJ Simpson, you know, started his life started his career and ended his career and and it's it's as much about america as it is about oj simpson and it's a fantastic series and i would highly highly recommend it my recommendation is going to be a cheat because it doesn't exist yet it's uh whatever jason air makes after this after the last dance you can't come out of doing a 10 episode doc like this and he's done other documentaries before the fab five he's on the 85 bears which was a 30 for 30 you can't do a 10 episode doc like this and not have some phenomenal skills um, and want to try and tackle something else. So I don't know what he's got lined up after this, but whatever it is, I recommend that. And I would add his uh, pre- previous film, uh, the Andre the Giant documentary is on, uh, on HBO and it's, it's a great uh, watch as well. So to wrap it up, the, uh, the line today is from Jay Cole. I got it. 2010 hoop dreaming, hanging up pictures of my idols. Jordan was like Jesus. Slam was like the Bible. I used to read it twice and cut the pictures out. Had the Jordan free throw dunk, tongue sticking out. There it is. There it is. Well, thanks, guys. 
Yep. So this was the epilogue of Jordan Ain't No Joke, episode six. I've been Sam Unin. And I'm JT. And I'm DC. And that's it. That's all she wrote.